Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus said the true worshipers are they that worship the Father in spirit and in truth. People worshiping in spirit right now. We're going to worship in truth by the word in just a moment. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy word. Thy truth. He said, thy word is truth. The word of God is truth. Amen. And uh, we need both. We need spirit. We need truth. Hallelujah. You know, without truth, we can't be saved. Without truth, we don't know who God is. Without truth, we don't know how to order our lives in a way that pleases Him. We need truth. It's something the world sorely lacks. It's truth. You're not going to find it out there, but you will find it in here by the grace of God. Amen. Young people, we dismiss you in Jesus' name. Go in faith. Kids, man, you're dismissed to your new classroom downstairs. Hallelujah. Have fun in the Holy Ghost. I know you will. The rest of us, we will turn in our word to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And then Isaiah 55, 3. Praise God. Praise the name of the Lord. Glad to be in the house of the Lord today. I've been looking forward to this moment. God is doing great things in our lives in this church. And I'm excited. I'm excited about what God is doing, what he will yet do. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. And whatever he's doing, I want to be a part of it. I want to be in the middle of it. As long as I've got strength, i got my health, i got breath in my body, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to do like Sister Switzer. Hallelujah. Glad to have you back home, Sister Switzer. Amen. I think she's going to be 88 years in just another month or so. 88. Amen. Sister, that's a long time. That's a blessed time. Look here. She is praising God in heavenly places. She's in the house of God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. What an inspiration she has been to all of us and me. Amen. And I, I want to be like her and follow in her footsteps. Praise God. Acts chapter 13, and I'll begin reading with verse 32. And here, the apostle Paul is preaching in the city of Antioch in Pisidia, up in central Turkey today in Asia Minor. It's about his second stop after being in Cyprus and going through the cities and ended up in Paphos and then now in, in, uh, in Antioch and went to the synagogue and he preaches a long sermon like me. And, and he says in verse 32 as he's preaching, it is very early on in his ministry. In fact, this is his first missionary journey. Second stop, basically. And, uh, and he says this, and, and so I'm just cutting right to the middle of his message here in the chase that I want to take this segment out to use as a springboard and a foundation for my, for my message to you today. And Paul says this, and we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised them up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, or meaning death and decay, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, 
And he's quoting Psalm 16:10, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on asleep and was laid under his fathers and saw corruption. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. I'm going to verse 39. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption, meaning Jesus. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, still speaking of Jesus, all that believe are justified from all things from which ye should not be justified by the law, or which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Very, very important. That faith in Jesus Christ and a new covenant is the thing, the only thing that can justify you and not the law of Moses. I want to focus your attention, however, um, in the latter part of verse 34, where he uh, quotes Isaiah 55, 3, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Amen. And I will read to you also now Isaiah 55, 3. Incline your ear and come unto me here and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Paul is quoting this very same segment. And uh, I'm going to get into a little bit this morning about what the sure mercies of David is all about. But I want to talk to you about the mercy of God. The sure mercies of David. Pray with me, would you, Lord? In Jesus' name, we come before you. We thank you, Lord, for your very presence. I feel your presence here, your anointing. And I pray that your word would flow through me, O oh God, through the lips of clay. So... Uh, so inadequate for all that you would have your people to know and to hear. But Lord, you're a creator. You can do all things. And Lord, I pray that you'd use the medium of voice and sound and let it reach the hearts of your people here today. Lord, you know the hearts, each and every one. And I pray that you would touch them, each and every one. God, you know what each and every one struggles with. God, we all have struggles. We, we have this treasured earth and vessels. We live in flesh and blood. And we have a fallen nature. And you know that, oh God. But God, have mercy on us today. And look beyond our weaknesses. And help us, oh God, to gain strength from your very presence and from your word. And give us understanding. In Jesus' name, we pray. And let the church say amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you for being here in the house of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise God. Caitlin and Kurt, good to see you. Disregard the text I sent you. I didn't see you earlier. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Again, good to see Sister Switzer. Good to see all of you in the house of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. God is a merciful God because he's a loving God. He is a loving God. Hallelujah. And it's important for you and I to know and understand the nature and attributes of our God, who is holy. Holiness is the number one attribute of God that is mentioned in the Bible more than any other. Yes, God is love and God is righteous and, and God is just. 
But more than anything, God describes himself through his prophets and through his revelation that he is holy. And that's important. Because you see, he may love us as much as he wants to. But if he disregards his holiness, it would mean death for us. Because we cannot get into God's presence without a proper, uh, a proper covering, a proper, proper way to approach him and an order to approach him. And it is God who designed a way that we can approach him as sinful fallen human beings to get close to him and have a relationship with him. It's not up to us. It's up to him because he's the holy one. We're not. And, and he, he would not die from our sin. It's quite the opposite. Amen. Sin dies in his presence. And he would burn up. And so, so holiness, the holy attribute of God is the one that has to be considered more than anything. But he loves us also. God is love. That's also part of his attribute. But in order to, to, to uh, fulfill and satisfy his love for us. He, he provided a means where you and I can approach him. And we have to do it his way. Praise the Lord. But among all the things that we know about God and we know of his glory, we know that he is merciful. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, I mentioned this before. God told him uh, four things. That I will put you in a cleft in a rock and I'll, I'll pass by before you'll see my hinder parts. And you will, you, I will uh, proclaim the goodness of the Lord. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord and my graciousness and my mercy. Mercy is one of those four things that belongs to the revelation of the glory of God. Because he is a merciful God and he, he wants us to know that he's merciful. When God gave Israel the plan to the tabernacle in the wilderness, one of the very first things that he, he told Moses to build is that mercy seat that covers the Ark of the Covenant, solid gold with two angelic beings, the cherubims, facing each other, looking into the Ark. That was called the mercy seat, for which every year the high priest would enter in with a hyssop branch and the blood of, a, of an unblemished lamb dipped into the blood. He'd go in there and he'd sprinkle it on top of that mercy seat, and God would commune with him. His cloud and his presence and glory would descend. And God told Moses uh, that I will commune from you from between the cherubims, uh, those cherubs. Uh, I will commune with you from there. God chose to commune with his people through a position of mercy. Not from the brazen altar, a place of death. Neither from the brazen labor, a place of washing. He said, no, no, I'm going to commune with you from the mercy seat because I am a merciful God. And I want you to know this morning that our God indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ, is merciful. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 records uh, uh, what happened when Moses finally did see the glory of God. It's in verse 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. Remember the name, that's the Lord, hallelujah. The Elohim, the Yahweh, the, 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 the Savior, the saving, delivering name of God. The Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for uh, thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that by no means clear the guilty. Hallelujah. How's that happen? Well, he's merciful, but you've got to ask for it. You're going to have to repent and change your ways. If you don't ask for it, if you don't turn, hallelujah, he's not going to clear you. You're not going to be cleared before God if you don't settle your account. 
but he's merciful when you come. Psalm 145, verse 8 9, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. And the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Lamentation 3, 21 through 23, Jeremiah writing, Then this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. What is that hope? It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Micah chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Who is a God unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again and he will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Hallelujah. What a mighty God we serve. Hallelujah. Psalms 89, 14. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Hallelujah. The purpose of my message today is to highlight the magnificent mercy of our God. God is a merciful God. And in order to receive his mercy, we need to understand the importance of true repentance and to understand the difference between just an admission of sin versus a confession of our sins. Admission versus confession. You see, an admission of sin is usually accompanied by Uh, By trying to cover up and even justify our sinful actions and behavior. The person who only admits his sin doesn't really accept full responsibility of their sin. And they're not really feeling the weight and burden of the conscience that that it, it exacts upon his soul. He's just... Moving his mouth and he's, he's, he's just admitting but he's not confessing with the purpose of repentance and turning away from them. And I want to use the example of the sins of two kings to illustrate this point. So bear with me if you would. The first, of course, will be King Saul. It's the first king of Israel. Now if you look at the history of Israel when, when God, of course, created Israel as a nation out of the bosom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his 12 sons. They spent about 450 years in, in Egypt as slaves, and they came out uh, 400 years from Egypt. And by the leadership of Moses, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. After those 40 years, Joshua took over. Joshua led them until he was 110 years old and helped them to uh, uh, land and, and to occupy the promised land, Canaan. And then they, 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 Joshua left, and then God gave them judges to rule over them. For a period of 450 years. So now when we look at the first king, Saul, that God chose. We're talking about 500, 550 years after Israel came out of Egypt. 550 years. Imagine. Now, to put it in perspective, understand that in about two years, three years, we will be celebrating our 250th anniversary. As a free nation, as an independent country, the United States of America. Israel was, was there 550 years before they had their first king. That's more than twice the length of time that this nation has been in existence. And so that's what I'm talking about. The first king, King Saul. They looked around and they wanted a, a king like all the other nations. And 
God spoke to the uh, prophet Samuel, all right, give him a king, I'll give him a king, but I'll choose. And God chose Saul out of the tribe of Benjamin. He ruled for 40 years. And I'm just going to speak to you about the highlights. After King Saul uh, uh, became king, amen, I'm going to turn back here to, uh, to 2 Samuel. Uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel, let's do that. Let's go back to 1 Samuel. Hallelujah. And uh, one of the first mistakes that he made was he disobeyed God's law about offering a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice on the altar uh, that he was not allowed to do. Why? Because God, when he ordained kings, he separated the Levitical priesthood from the royal lines of kings. There, the, the, the kings and priests were separated, not as today under the church. We are kings and priests under God forever. Amen. Hallelujah. But in the Old Testament, he, there was a separation of church and state. And in fact, this is also a, where, where our founding fathers of America got this concept of separation of church and state. Because Israel had that. God ordained that. There was a separation between the royal line of kings and the Levitical priesthood. And, and so King Saul, uh, he was about to go into battle and he was impatient. And, and Samuel, the prophet, the man of God, was late. And, uh, and so he said, bring me that offering, bring me that fire. And he offered that sacrifice unto God. He crossed that line. And, of course, he was rebuked for it. In fact, God was so displeased with that violation that, uh, that, that the, the, God pronounced a, a judgment on him that his kingdom will no longer continue. But before that axe fell, there was yet another sin that took place. And that we read about in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, understand, when Israel came out of Egypt, they, were, uh, they didn't have an army. Uh, they had some men who could, who could fight uh, simply because they were uh, hard workers and they had instruments in their hands where they could, you know, they could actually stand against uh, somebody attacking them. You look, you're going to do what you have to when, when you need to. And here come the Amalekites and they attacked the Israelites as they're coming out of Egypt in the rear. And they fought with them all day. You can read about Exodus 17. That's where... You know, Moses was holding up his hands and Aaron and her on the sides and they held his hands up and, and they won the victory at, at the end of the day. But God told Moses, write this down in a book and I want you to make sure you repeat this time and again to Joshua that I will have war with Amalek for generations to come. Until Israel strong, I will wipe them out. So here we have, here we come about 500 plus years later. Can you grasp that concept? God doesn't forget. Just because time passes by and you think somebody's getting away with it, look what so-and-so has done, look what that country has done, look what this nation has done, look what other countries have done. They're not getting by with anything, especially when they're messing with God's people. And God told his king, look, you're king, I chose you, I got, a, I got a job for you, dude. I want you to now go and I want you to uh, attack Amalek. And uh, thus is the Lord of hosts. I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not. But slay both man, woman, infant, suckling, ox, sheep, camel, ass. And the first king gathered all the people of Israel together, about 210,000. He went to fight against Amalek and fulfill the commandment of God. However, uh, he did not execute the word of God fully. 
He kept the king and he kept the best of the sheep. Verse 9. Uh, but Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, of the fatlings, and of the lambs, and all that was good, that he would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile or refuse, that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord to Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Oh, it grieved Samuel so bad. Samuel was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And here he is grieving and praying, oh God. And early in the morning he went to see Saul. And he's coming in from the battlefield. And, and when he saw Samuel, Saul said, Blessed be thou the Lord, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, oh yeah? Oh, what's this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen? And Saul said, they, now watch this, when Saul is confronted with his sin, watch how he responds. Look, listen to this king. They, not me, they brought them from the Amalekites for they, the people, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen of sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said, well, you know what? I got something to tell you. And God told me to tell you, when you were little in your own sight, you know, God called you to be the king, and now here he called you, and he said, go utterly destroy the Amalekites and fight against them until they're consumed. And he says, why? Wherefore then, in verse 19, didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil? And what's Saul's response in verse 20? He said, yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And have gone the way which the Lord sent me. And brought Agag, the king of Amalek, have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, and the sheep and oxen, and the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to, here it is, for good reason, Lord, to, to, to sacrifice unto the Lord. See, I, I did it for a good reason. I had a good motivation to disobey God. I have a good reason. It's a spiritual one. I want to sacrifice. People want to sacrifice. To thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and the hark and then the fat of rams. For rebellion is as, of, as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. What Samuel's trying to do is get Saul to see the seriousness of his sin. He says, Saul, you may not think that your rebellion and your incomplete fulfillment of God's command is, is so big, but, but it is equatable to, to iniquities like, like, like idolatry, witchcraft. Those are capital crimes under the law of Moses. You did those things, you were stoned to death. And here... Samuel was trying to open Saul's eyes as to how serious this matter is. But Saul didn't see the seriousness of his sins until it was really too late in his life. Because in verse 24, we see that uh, 
finally Saul admits his sin, admits, and he says this. Listen to what he says. And Samuel, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. It's about time. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words. Because, see here comes just the admission instead of confession. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. It's them. You see, I, I didn't have a way out. I, it was either God and the people, and I chose the people. Now, therefore, I pray thee, pardon my sin. Turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. As Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord hath rejected thee for being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, the Bible says that Saul grabbed the hold of his mantle and his skirt on his robe. And it had to be very forceful because the Bible said it ripped. Oh, that was, that was an egregious, really, offense to the man of God who anointed him to be king, who speaks the word of God to him. And as response, Samuel said to him in verse 28, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And in verse 30, Saul says this, Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel. I, I, I want to be seen in good light to other people. See, my pride keeps me back from confessing my sin and falling on my knees and, and just begging for God's forgiveness and for his mercy. But, but uh, no, 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 I, I, I understand. I, I know I have done wrong, but I'm justified in what I did. Furthermore, would you just come and stand here with me and, and validate me as king in their eyes because I care more about what the people think than what God thinks. And he did. Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. The Bible says in verse 35, And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. And even at that, it was because Samuel's already dead, and Saul went to a witch. Hmm. The rebellion, the sin of witchcraft. He goes to a witch to call up Samuel to get advice on what to do in a moment when he didn't know what to do against an overwhelming enemy. And so the Bible tells us in, uh, in, in Luke 18 and 9, you know, about this problem of, of self-justification, this problem of self-righteousness, in trying to justify ourselves, because that's really what Saul tried to do. Jumping in the New Testament, Jesus talked about this. He spoke a parable in Luke 18, 9. So he spoke this parable to the, uh, the son, to certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. And the publicans were, you know, the people who worked in public offices for the Roman government, and many of them were Jews, but they worked for the Romans. And they said, we're looking for as traitors and, and liars and cheaters and extortionists and, and, and getting things out of the Jewish people illegally to make themselves wealthy. And so, so he says, this, this two, two people went down to the temple to, to pray. A Pharisee and a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within, and said this within himself. I thank thee that I am not as other men are. 
Right away, he starts out his prayer comparing himself to others and not to God. That's the big problem with self-righteousness. When you compare yourself to others and many others who are a lot worse than you, you know, it makes you look good. It makes you feel good, but not in the eyes of God. And so here's this man, the Pharisee, says, I'm, I thank thee I'm not as other men are. Like what? Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Oh, and, and even here at the bottom of the, of the ladder here is that the worst, the publican. I'm, I'm glad I'm not like this publican. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Then Jesus said, and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You talk about confession, one of self-justification, by comparing yourself to somebody else and not to God. Oh, God, forgive me, a sinner. And you know what Jesus said? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. See, the prayer unto justification instead of confession, not just admission. This is really what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. What's that mean in common language? I'll read you the NLT. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Worldly sorrow, it's, it's, it's that feeling of, of being sorry for getting caught. And not feeling remorse for what you did as sin. I'm talking about confession versus admission. And we see in the life of Saul. It was all about admitting but no repentance and no confession. A hardened heart in fact. Now when you look at the second king of Israel, King David. Uh, he, it was a while before he got to the throne. Now, even under the... The rule and reign of, of, uh, of Saul, uh, Samuel was sent to anoint David, a young lad. who was a great hero already in the eyes and minds of Israel. He, uh, he defeated the giant of Goliath and, uh, and, uh, and won a great victory. And so he, he was very, very popular. And, uh, and in any case, he was called a man after God's own heart. And, and he was. Uh, he was a great leader, and the people loved him. And uh, indeed, he had a great heart. Even, you know, the Israeli flag today is called the Magan David, the flag of David. Uh, David is, is, is the number one king in the hearts and minds of the Israelites, the Jewish people, even today. He wrote many, if not most, of the Psalms of the Bible, and he was a genuine worshiper of the one true God, indeed. But when you look at his life, you begin to see that even the most most spiritual person is still walking in human flesh and is plagued by the sins that so easily beset us. 
And all of us fall into that category. The sin that so easily besets us. And, and we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that, you know, he, he has a, he's got a thought. He's got an idea. Uh, he's sitting in his house and God has given him a rest over all the enemies. Saul's dead and he's now, you know, fought several battles to, you know, to defeat the enemies of Israel round about, territorially speaking. There's no more territorial disputes, so to speak. And uh, Saul's family's now out of the way too. And, and he's, got, he's in firm control of Judah and Israel, the two factions. Amen. That split apart after Saul. And so he's now got rest about in, in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. It came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him a rest round about of all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet. Now Nathan, how Samuel's already dead in God. Nathan was the one that God sent to be a minister to David as a prophet. And he tells the prophet, see now, you know, isn't it interesting that he kept the man of God close at hand? And he mentions this idea, the thought in his heart. See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in thy heart, for the Lord is with thee. You know, it's good to submit your plans to the man of God. Who's got some spiritual insights into what's going on in the world. You can do it on your own. Yes, you can be your own person. But sometimes you need some spiritual guidance and many make shipwreck of their walk with God without consulting the spiritual aspect in their life, the spiritual authority. But well, many times these don't have the spiritual authority because they don't look for it. And so as a result, when Nathan you know, heard the idea and David had this thought, I'm going to build him a temple. It's just not right. God's ark is in the tent. I'm here, I'm at the palace of stone and cedar and, and pomp and, and beauty and gold and silver. And God's ark is just sitting in a tent. It's just not right. And so that night, the Bible says that God spoke to him. God gave him a word. And uh, he says, that word the Lord came unto Nathan saying, go tell my servant David, you're going to build, did I ever ask for a house as long as I've been with Israel? And, and, and did I ever ask for some great pompous temple or whatnot? No, I didn't. But, but because you had this idea, because this was in your heart, I'm telling you what, I'm going to build you a house. And when he said a house, he was really talking about a familiar dynasty, a dynasty of his family, of a lineage of kings which shall spread for not only from David, but all down through the ages, even unto the time that Jesus Christ, a descendant of David, a seed of David, shall sit on his throne, and he will rule and reign on that throne forever. And that's basically part of the, of the sure mercies of God also, that God will not, uh, will not take away his mercy, in fact, as he did from Saul. And we read this in verse 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house, meaning your dynasty, your lineage, and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, and thy throne shall be established forever. Hallelujah. And that refers to Jesus Christ coming back and sitting on his throne to the millennium and eternity. It's the throne of David because God had a man after his own heart. Because, you understand, that there's so much more I can say about this, but I want to confine it to God's mercy. 
Understand, God did not forgive uh, the sins of Saul, not because he wasn't merciful, it's because he didn't repent. Saul didn't take advantage of, of full repentance and confession. He was content in just defending himself, justifying himself, and living in his own self-righteousness, and he died with it. But David was a different animal. It's a different situation altogether. He said, I'm not going to be like with Saul. I'm not going to withhold my mercy. Hallelujah. In fact, I'm going to bless him like nobody else before. And he did. And, uh, and then his son Solomon became the next king for another 40 years. And the rest is history. But I want to stay with David here. Hallelujah. Mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul. So this is one of the first promises that God makes to him. Is that, that, that he was never going to take away the kingdom from David like he took it away from Saul. No matter what. Even if he messes up. I'm not going to take it away from you. Amen. Because I know your heart. The second promise was that God was going to build him a house, a house of David, as I mentioned, for his kindness towards God. And that, again, refers to that family dynasty of kings and rulers who will be his descendants and ultimately the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then years later, uh, David, as he's thinking back and reflecting, and really under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost in Psalm 16, uh, it was revealed to him and promised to him that his descendant, Jesus, the Messiah, will die in his humanity, but after three days he will rise from the dead, and as a result, he will live and rule forever on the throne of David. Now, I'm just going to throw this in for good measure. Okay, it's not, it is mentioned under the heading of the sole mercies of God. I mean, the, 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 the sure mercies of God. But Psalm 16.10, Psalm 16 was penned by David also. And this is what he said. And this is all, also belongs to the sure mercies of David. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. And the hell is Sheol, meaning the grave in Hebrew. You will not leave my soul in the grave. Neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one, capital H and capital O, to suffer corruption. And this is a reference to Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Why? Because in the Jewish mindset, in their understanding of things, a body does not begin to corrode, to, to corrode and, and to decompose until after three days. After three days. And so what, what this psalm says is that you will not suffer corruption or this decomposition to take place for the Holy One, the Messiah that will come and will die on Calvary. He will not suffer corruption. Why? Because after three days he will be risen from the dead. And interestingly, this Psalm 1610 is the very scripture that is quoted by Peter in Acts 2.27 on the day of Pentecost. And in verse 31 also on the day of Pentecost refers to this very Psalm to refer to the resurrection. And the Apostle Paul also used it as we have read in Acts 12, uh, as Acts 13 verse 35. So they referenced the promise of God that was made to the Jews, particularly David, about the resurrection of the Messiah being a descendant of King David. And this, again, is part and parcel of the, of the sure mercies of David. Yeah. I threw that in there for good measure because you'll see in the, Old, in the New Testament, uh, a lot is referred to many times about the resurrection. 
And when they were talking and preaching to the Jews, this is what they talked about more than anything else. The resurrection was promised. It was promised to David. And, and Paul, even when he defended himself, uh, you know, when, when the Sadducees and Pharisees were in court and he was training trial among Roman, uh, a Roman judge, uh, he called upon this fact, this upon, because of the promise that was made to our fathers that I'm called into question. And so the Pharisees grabbed him and said, well, if he's seen the Spirit, if he, he believes in the resurrection, well, he's ours, he's all right. Sadducees says, no, he's not, he needs to be died. Anyway, big argument ensued. King David, he's stunned by these promises. And in response, you can read, he goes before the Lord, he sits down, he utters a prayer of humility and, and awe in, of the one true God and, and just feels so humbled by the promises that he gives him. And he goes his way and begins to collect funds and finances. And uh, indeed, he, uh, he, uh, he has victory after victory still, whenever trouble comes. But the problem is, is that in chapter 11, he, he has a major, major problem. When he should be out on the battlefield, he's at home at night. He gets off his bed at, at night. Daytime he sleeps. Nighttime he gets up. He goes out there on his porch and he looks over at his neighbor's house and there's Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, taking a bath. And you know the story. He calls her over. He has an affair, he commits adultery, and uh, Bathsheba gets pregnant. On top of that, he tries to cover it up. He tries to call Uriah home from the battlefront, who's out there fighting the king's battles. And uh, he tries to uh, have him come home and, and spend a few days with his wife, uh, maybe have some intimate relations, and maybe he could get away with him thinking that that child and Bathsheba is his. Well, when that doesn't work because he doesn't go in the house, he sleeps on the curbside. He never goes in this. He says, I can't go in there with my wife and having a good time when all my friends and buddies and compatriots are out there on the battlefield dying. Nah, I'm not going to do it. Well, David went a step further. He took letters, you know, sealed it, gave it to Uriah. He took it to Joab, the top general, fighting in the battle scene. And, of course, the, the command was, go put Uriah in the, in the front lines and then withdraw, let him be killed. Basically, he gave him a death sentence. And that's exactly what happened. Months go by and Bathsheba's belly is getting bigger. David doesn't budge. He doesn't say a word. His heart is getting hardened. But God in his mercy sends Nathan the prophet to David. Now, it's interesting to note, Nathan, short for Jonathan, Yah, Yah, Natan. Yah is God, Yahweh. And Natan means gift, gift of God. God sends a gift to David, a gift of mercy. But first, God has to confront his sin. And so we see in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel that, uh, that, that Nathan confronts him, and he tells a story, tells a parable, which David can see and and, it, uh, and he thinks it's a true story, and, and, and he hears about a man that, that takes, as you know, uh, who's very rich and wealthy, but he takes the pet lamb of a, of a neighbor who's very poor, and all they have is that little, little lamb, and uh, it's the kid's pet, 
And, uh, and here's this wealthy man. He's got flocks and, and all kinds of wealth. And, and yet, when he has this guest come over, he goes over to this poor guy, takes that little lamb, kills it, and feeds it under this guest instead of taking a lamb from his own flock. Of course, David, as an ex-shepherd, gets really hot under the collar. He sees the sin in others so easy, like we do, and we overlook ours. Hallelujah. David, when he hears that is the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the land fourfold. That was according to the law of Moses. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Now let's look at how David responds when he's confronted to his sin. He said, God says, I anointed the king over Israel. And he told him, if, if you would have wanted more, I would have given you more, etc., etc." And he, he tells him what he has done wrong in killing Uriah and what he had done with Bathsheba. Now the sword is never going to leave your house, etc., etc. And in response, he said, you did all this secretly, but I'm going to open it all up so everybody can see. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord, and in response, Nathan said this, The Lord hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Now this brings me to a great question, conundrum. I'm telling you, I, I, I thought about this. How could it be that God in the Ten Commandments said, If you commit murder, you're going to die. If you commit adultery, they are to be stoned to death. And yet, God seems to violate his own law to let this man off scot-free. Well, he's not scot-free because he's going to have to pay fourfold, and he did. How could God do this? Well, I began to think. I'll tell you what. I, it, I, and what I found uh, really astounded me. Thou art the man. I have sinned. See, when, when God forgave David, he, first of all, promised him that he would not withhold mercy from him, no matter what he did. And because David's response to Nathan's message was a broken heart, a broken spirit, and his immediate confession of his sins without trying to hide it or make excuses. Now listen to this. As a result, God chose to judge him not by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of the law. There's a difference between the two. In the Old Testament law, it, hey, look, the law is important. Hallelujah. But the, the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. The New Testament tells us. I mean, the letter of the law. The apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 3.6. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. Not of the letter. Not the letter of the law of the Old Testament. But of the spirit. For the letter killeth, but the spirit giveth life. So we've got to understand that the law that God gave in the Old Testament, it was to allow man to make a difference between right and wrong from God's point of view. 
It's not only so that we could know the right and wrong, but it's to bring man into an awareness of his sins in his life and to make him aware of the consequences. The law's purpose is also to enable a man to judge sin in his own life and so not to destroy him. See, God didn't put the law in there to destroy us. All the Old Testament always sees examples that destroyed life when, when they broke the law. But the whole purpose of the law was not to destroy mankind, but to bring them to repentance. True repentance. And when the law accomplished that in David's heart, it's David's life, God says, you just jumped dispensations, boy. I'm going to judge you by the New Testament spirit of the law, not the Old Testament letter of the law. I'm talking, I feel the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. I, I, I'm talking about Acts chapter uh, 13 and Acts chapter 2. I'm talking about the sure mercies of David. I'm talking about you and I. So seven words, the purpose of the law given to man, to know, to judge, to confess, to repent, to save, to reconcile, and restore. The whole purpose of the law was to get us to understand our sin and his nature of holiness to come into a place of repentance and be truly sorry for who we are with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It means the Lord will not despise. And when we confess those things, then turn from it and abhor our, abhor our ways. Then we can turn to him with full assurance and confidence that he will forgive me abundantly. Mercy. In mercy. Jesus said, for the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And the example of King David, we see the purpose of the spirit of the law in action before, long before it ever was fully activated in the New Testament. Hallelujah. Praise God. And again, that, that, that purpose is to, again, bring full awareness to man and his sin, to bear the full brunt of the weight of his conscience, to let him realize the gravity, the pain, the misery, the ugliness of sin, his own sin, and to bring him to a place of not just admission, but full confession, humility, remorse, and regret. I'm again, abhorring your sins. See, Job said this when he finally got through it all, and God talked to him. Job said this in Job 42, 6, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah 6, 5 then said, I woe unto me, I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, how did he say he got into the death? He saw the presence of God. He wasn't any longer comparing himself to the other Israelites. For the first five chapters of Isaiah, he says, Woe unto them, woe unto this, woe unto that. He's condemning people left and right until he got into the temple and saw the holy God. He said, Woe is me. And that's what God wants us to do, to get to a place where we can see ourselves. Hallelujah. And when we come before God repentance, it's all about true confession. And I'm coming to a close but I want to show you this short video. My son sent this to me, and we talked about this. I'll tell you what, this is what inculcated all this. I heard about this case. It took place three months ago in Roswell, Georgia. Georgia Roswell, New Mexico. A man committed a crime 14 years ago. He killed somebody. And 14 years later, in May, he called the police department to confess. Let's see what happens. Five minutes, okay? Go, go ahead and play, Sister Kayla. A missing persons case closed with News a report. murder confession out of the blue more than 14 years later. 
News 13 investigative reporter Ann Perret sifted through all the audio and video of that confession to show you how police weren't so sure about his story until they started pulling up the floorboards. Ann? Roswell police get suspicious at one point, wondering if Tony Peralta is making all of this up because he can't remember every detail. But the ones he does end up leading them right to his landlord's body. One 911 call. Sir, tell me exactly what happened. Well, I killed somebody. You killed somebody? Yes, sir. With a casual confession made from a stranger's phone at a gas station. Here you go. Puts an end to a 14-year mystery. What's your name, sir? Tony Peralta. And who is the person that you killed, Tony? His name is Bill. Bill, whose full name is William Blodgett, was reported missing to Roswell police more than a decade ago. It's the middle of a Monday afternoon earlier this month. A very calm Peralta waits on the curb for officers to arrive. I'm just tired of covering it up. Try to cover it up? Yeah. Okay. I'm tired of living with my life, sir. The guilt? Yeah, yeah. The officer asks if Peralta will take him to where he buried Blodgett. Let's go. Okay. Without being told, Peralta puts his hands behind his back to be cuffed. As he's walked to a patrol car, he thanks the officers. Thank you guys for coming. It's the first of many thank yous throughout his arrest. Peralta's driven to the Roswell Police Department, where he tells them he's taken blood pressure pills and a drink to get up the nerve to come forward. Did it happen at the house? It did. I was I was on meth really bad. Okay. And I killed him because he didn't give me no money. And I buried him in his house. Because he can't remember the address, Peralta agrees to help them locate the house. We later find out he lived there too. Blodgett was his landlord. In his early 20s, Peralta rented a room in Blodgett's house. It's right here. The next house. This white one? This white one here? Yeah. I buried him in that slight place right here. The area that looks like a room added on to the home. Now that they have the address, police match it to an old report on William Blodgett's disappearance, which shows they were suspicious of Peralta then and even searched the house. Why didn't they smell his body in there? I don't know. It's a good question. Blodgett's son reported him missing in January 2009, saying he hadn't been seen since Christmas Eve. Court records revealed police used a cadaver dog on the property days after he disappeared. And a detective interviewed Peralta because a witness told police Blodgett had accused Peralta of stealing his wallet and trying to evict him. But the report states neither the dog nor Peralta gave police any leads. They closed the case. But what part of that room? The left side. The left side? Yeah, if you dig in, if you pull the board up and dig them up. And sure enough, with a shovel and flashlights, officers get to work doing just that. Let's pull this out. Let's see what Let's see where to get it with the shovel. It takes some time, but they eventually realize Peralta was telling the truth. Oh, that's a shoot. Yep, you can see. I think it is. There's the, like, I think it's the boot. Oh, check that. Yep. 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 That boot has bones in it. 
While they wait for the search warrant to continue collecting remains, Peralta is driven back to the station. Police have more questions. I just don't want to talk anymore. Now listen to confession. True confession. Off your shoulders now, man. <laughs> Peralta starts to let go of 14 years of guilt. I know this is probably not a, a, big, a big, hard decision you had to make. You've been thinking about it for a while. Every day. The detective tries to get more information from Peralta, and he repeatedly says he can't remember. But he does eventually admit. He used a screwdriver to kill the 69-year-old. You got family in town here? Yeah. That's why I wanted to confess for him. They don't, you know, nothing happens to them. It was my fault for my son. The detective tells Peralta this should bring some closure to Blodgett's family. I told him that he was a good man and I should have did what I did. He was always good to me and I took his life for no reason. And I don't have an excuse. Online court records show Peralta has been arrested four times by Roswell police over the years, but none of those were for violent crimes. He's now charged with first-degree murder. Back to you. The story. All Thank right. you, Anne. Roswell Thank police you, did Kayla. locate all of William Blodgett's Praise body, God. along with the cell. Thank you, Jesus. Do you see his confession? True repentance. You know, it shows you that because he, he was a meth addict. He was on meth at the time when he did that. And, and it shows you that, that many folks out there, you know, when you have chemical dependencies and various things you use put in your body, it makes you do things that you normally wouldn't do. And then you do things that you regret and live with something like this for 14 years. The weight that came off his shoulder, you, you see what he did? That was weighing so much on his heart. And people walk around with that kind of guilt and that kind of shame and that kind of weight. And it's crushing. And, and they, they try to take medicine. He says he's got blood pressure. But yeah, he has blood pressure. He's got health issues. Why? Because he's, he's not dealt with this sin. Hallelujah. Now, I played that confession to you because I want you to to know that when, when, when Nathan confronted David with his sin, when David said to him, I have sinned against the Lord, it wasn't just, yeah, I've sinned. What you got to do is look at his psalm of confession. And I'm coming to a close here. But please listen to me. Now, we started late. We've got, you know, we had a great move of the Spirit. I feel the Holy Ghost in this place right now. I want you to understand and get a flavor of, of David's repentance here as he was crushed under the weight of his sin when Nathan confronted him. It wasn't, yeah, I sinned. He says in Psalms 51, hallelujah. If you got your Bible, you can turn and uh, go with me there. Hallelujah. <clears throat> Praise God. Have mercy upon me, O God. And it wasn't just have mercy. Have mercy upon me, O oh God. According to thy loving kindness, according to thy multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. 
I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shaped with iniquity and in sin and my mother conceived me. Yes, I know I've got a sinful nature. Behold, thy desires truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. It's deep down under. You want us to be truthful to ourselves and honest with ourselves and sincere in judging ourselves as to who we really are in comparison to you. So he says, purge me with hyssop. He's referring here to that act where the high priest comes and annually takes the blood of the lamb and dips it in the blood and goes into the holiest of holies and sprinkles that blood on the mercy seat. He says, if that kind of sprinkling, do, do apply that blood to me. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. When he says create in me, you know, it's the same word in Hebrew that's used in Genesis 1 and 1, creating the world. It literally means creating something out of nothing. And what David was referring to was, God, in order for me to have a new heart, I know it's going to need a miracle. I'm going to need your miracle working power. I need you to recreate, but not just to cover it up and fix it and just salve it with some medicine. I need a new heart that only you can create within me. And nobody, I need a miracle in my life, oh God. Renew a right spirit with me. Cast me not away from thy presence like Cain, who killed his brother. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. I kill somebody. And there's guilt that's associated with it. It's killing me. O God, thou God of my with salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud with righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. And now listen to these final two verses. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. You know, he realized probably during those months that he was under that weight of condemnation. All those sacrifices he might have taken to the temple just was empty. Empty acts of sacrifice. Here I am, unconfessed. Here I got these sins. I killed somebody and I committed adultery. I'm here giving all these animal sacrifices. It doesn't mean anything because I haven't changed. You talk about somebody that really knows what it's like just for show, sacrificing. So he says, uh, so he says for thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. And I know there's no blood sacrifice for this kind of sin. I deserve death. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God. Here it is. New Testament concept. Are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Stand with me if you would. I'm talking about. I'm talking about the sure mercies of David. Our God. 
is a merciful God. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now you have a better understanding why John said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, not just a minute, if we confess our sins and we see ourselves and really what that really, how, how the gravity of that sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Water baptism does that too when you first come to God. It's this dipping, it's this immersion. Prophet Isaiah talks about, come let us reason together. Though your sins were scarlet, they should be white as snow. It's, it's like dying. Take a, you, you take a, a, a cloth and it's one color, and you dip it into the dye, it comes out another color. That's what baptism and being washed by God is all about. It's becoming somebody totally different. A heart being different. Our motivations being different. By an act of God as we confess our sins. Ephesians 2, 4 begins with this, but God who is rich in mercy. Our God is rich in mercy. I'm here to tell somebody today that you may feel far from the Lord. You may feel like you've been playing church for a while. You may be under conviction of your own conscience. And that's okay. Conviction is good. Conviction brings you to a place of repentance. It leads you to repentance. Condemnation is of the flesh. It makes you feel ashamed. And God doesn't want anybody to be ashamed. He wants you to be convicted. Because conviction is good. It prompts you to do the right thing. But whether you do that or not, by faith, is up to you. I don't know your heart. God does. And you're not here to please me. You're not here to please the church. Not anybody. You're here to please God. And the question is, what condition is your heart in? Has God been dealing with you about something? Do you feel like you're far from God? Are you really feeling like you're in constant intimate relationship with Him? I I can just tell you right now, if you feel far from Him, you need to examine yourself and come close to Him and pray pray the prayer of David. Lord, I need help. Create in me a clean heart. I love you, Lord. I want you, Lord. I know you're merciful. If I'm honest and sincere with you. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. I'm wondering if there's anyone here that wants to experience the sure mercies of David, which is the mercy of God. Hallelujah. Just lift your hand.